This is uh, to the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And uh, Jim Larson asked me just to share a couple of comments about the Apostles' Creed. I know I taught a lot about this in confirmation. I'm sure Dave has done this too, and it's an important thing. But you know, it's interesting uh, wondering where the Apostle Creed came from. I don't know if any of you kind of understand that. How many of you think the Apostles wrote it? <laughs> uh, actually, they have some influence on it. They probably didn't actually write it themselves, but there was a rumor uh, that they actually did that. Uh, some of the early church believed that they each apostle wrote one of the kind of the creeds or one of the parts of that. But uh, it actually is believed that it came from something called the old, old Roman creed. And this is what they used to recite before someone was baptized in the early church. And so every time someone was baptized, they would recite, uh, re- uh, recite that uh, Romans creed, which is almost exactly uh, like the apostles creed. And I don't know if you realize it, but Uh, In the United Methodist Church, we still use the Apostles' Creed in the traditional baptismal services. You know, if you look at page 41 in your hymnal uh, at the beginning, uh, we actually ask those questions, you know, do you believe in God the Father? And then we actually go through uh, the whole Apostles' Creed. So I just wanted to share a couple of those things about just uh, where it came from. But let's join together in reciting the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God God the Father Father Almighty, creator of heaven heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Thank you, Pastor Randy. So I call this uh, Lukewarm and Laodicea. It's the final message in the sermon series on the letters from Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and these messages are found uh, where Randy read in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Remember, the Apostle John is, in his old age, he was banished off to an island called Patmos. 
It's about a four-hour boat ride from the coast of Turkey, and all the other disciples, insofar as we can tell, had died a martyr's death. And they tried to kill John, but he didn't die. And so they exiled him to Patmos, and history and tradition tells us that there in a cave, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. And that's described in Revelation chapter 1. John saw Jesus, and Jesus spoke to John and said, write this down. So John is at this point an older man, and this is nearing the end of the first century, And Jesus speaks to him. Jesus ultimately gives him letters to the seven churches of the Revelation. Included in them is this letter to the church at Laodicea. And so John faithfully records the words of Jesus. And Jesus is communicating from heaven here. Uh, He's died for our sin. And at this point in history, he's risen for our salvation. He's ascended as our sovereign Lord and our sovereign King And he has all knowledge of everything that's going on on the earth, including what is happening right here in this church at Laodicea. And so he has a particular word for these people in Revelation 3, 14 to 22, the passage that Randy uh, just got through reading. Before we get into the text, let's describe Laodicea as a city. Archaeology and history helps us out here a lot. Remember... These are real places. Mary and I, along with others from Calvary, visited each of these cities in Turkey on our Seven Churches of the Revelation tour with Dr. Mark Wilson in 2007. First of all, Laodicea was incredibly wealthy. And they were famous for the manufacture of a special eye salve, and then also for a black, glossy, wool, cloth, and people would come from everywhere to buy this stuff. And archaeology reveals that their homes were very big, very large. And they had not just one theater, but they had two theaters in Laodicea. And they had a highly developed water system, you know, hot spring water piped in from Hierapolis, and then cold, fresh cold water piped in from from Colossae. And Laodicea was also a major banking center. And it was just a bopping place. Incredible wealth and affluence. It was like the Beverly Hills or the Manhattan of its day. It also was kind of overlooking a valley. And so the people would be looking down on the rest of the region, and that kind of typifies the attitude of the people at Laodicea. Uh, They kind of look down on everybody else. Laodicea, like the rest of the cities we've talked about, was polytheistic, poly meaning many theistic gods, so many gods, and Zeus being the main one, but many other deities were worshipped in Laodicea. So because of the ISAV and because of the black wool and because of the banking and pagan temples, Laodicea was a very strategic place for a church to be. People from all over and for many different reasons would come to Laodicea. Many opportunities for the church to share the gospel. Anyway, Jesus gives the church at Laodicea no encouragement. There's no commendation here. But he does have four rebukes. Or to put it in kind of a nice way, Jesus shares with the church at Laodicea four areas of need. And so the first area of need was this. They had lost their passion. 
I mean, you look at verses 15 and 16. It says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my life. You see, in the Christian life, there are three spiritual temperatures. There is a burning heart. Uh, That's a heart that's on fire for God. Like when those two on the road to Emmaus met the resurrected Jesus and said in Luke 24, 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You ever had a burning heart? There's the burning heart, but there's also a cold heart. And that cold heart is described in Matthew 24, verse 12, describing the last days. Jesus says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold, cold hearts. So you got burning hearts, cold hearts, but there in Revelation 3.16 that was read today is the lukewarm heart. The lukewarm Christian is comfortable, complacent, and does not realize his need. Jesus was using a word picture from their culture. You know, both the cold water from Colossae and the hot water from Hierapolis would be lukewarm, by the time it was actually piped into Laodicea. And the people would probably complain that the water wasn't hot and it wasn't cold, it was lukewarm. And by the way, in that culture, they would use lukewarm water to induce vomiting. How many of you are coffee drinkers and tea drinkers? Yeah, Starbucks. Uh, cold is good, right? You know, you think iced coffee, you think about it right now, you say, you know, that's a good idea. Iced tea, ice, you know, iced coffee, and then you got hot coffee, And then you got hot tea, uh, but lukewarm water, uh, lukewarm tea, lukewarm coffee, that's never good. And the point is, hot and cold is what they would have preferred, but lukewarm is what they always had. And so what they would complain about was the lukewarm nature of their water source. And Jesus here is looking at the context of their culture, and he's trying to find a way to make it clear what he's trying to say, to communicate to the people in a way that will be gripping to them and understood by them, a word picture. And what he says basically is this, you know, every morning when you get up and you don't have that hot water and you really can't make your coffee and you really can't make your tea or whatever it was in that day that they enjoyed and you put it to your mouth and you're complaining and you're frustrating because it's very unpleasant, Jesus says, your church is like that to me. It's just lukewarm. It's not hot. You know, where's the passion? Where's the enthusiasm? Where's the excitement? Where's the devotion? Where's the sacrifice? Where's the mission? Where's the commitment? Jesus is saying, just lukewarm. That's all you are. And he says, it's it's displeasing to me. And as you will spit lukewarm drink out of your mouth, Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, and so he's here trying to communicate with them of what it's like to be their God, and he uses this word picture right within their culture, lukewarm water. They had lost their passion. They were lukewarm, and Jesus was just about to spit them out of his mouth, and not only had they lost their passion, but they also lost their values. I mean, look at verses 17 and 18. It says, you say I'm rich and have acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you 
can see. Remember the church at Smyrna? That's the one that Blake preached about the second week, I believe. The church at Smyrna thought itself poor when it was really rich. And the church here in Thessalonica, they thought itself rich when in fact they were poor. Their pockets were full, but their hearts were empty. In Laodicea, they thought money was the answer. They lost their values. And Jesus shows up and he says, you know, though you are materially, materially rich, I mean, you've got these houses, you've got big houses, and you've got all these successful businesses. In my eyes, you're poor because you're self-sufficient. There's no growth, there's no life, there's no health in your soul. They were worshiping comfort instead of Christ. Would that describe the American church today? You tell me. They lost their passion. They lost their values. They also lost their sight. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. Don't you realize that you are wretched, poor, blind, and naked? The Laodiceans were blind. They could not see reality. They were kind of living in a fool's paradise. Proud of a church that was just about to be rejected. (laughs) And so Jesus goes on to say that they are blind. Again, this would have been quite shocking because one of the things that this city was known for, like I mentioned, was this ancient eye salve. And when people had visual problems or they had blindness, they would come right here to Laodicea or to... uh, and have a, a special, where the special salve was created, uh, and it was connected. You know, when people had visual problems or they had blindness, they would come right there to Laodicea, and it was connected to their kind of advanced uh, naturopathic uh, medical care, and then this eye salve would be applied, and, and sometimes the blindness would be cured, and so people would come here from miles away in an effort to be cured from physical blindness. And Jesus says, isn't it ironic, you know, that in an area where there's a constant healing for visual blindness, there's still this spiritual blindness. You need the salve. You need the oil of the Holy Spirit. The people have essentially closed their eyes to Jesus. They're blind to Jesus. They close their eyes to the fact that they're sinners and they need a savior. They lost their passion. They lost their values. They lost their sight. They also lost their clothes. <laughs> you know, it says here in the 17 and 18, you know, do you not realize you're wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked? They were naked. Wow. So Jesus goes on and he says that they're naked. And in that day, this would have been like ultimate humiliation. Only those who had undergone tragedy or they were very poor would have been seen with any degree of nakedness. And so these people would have dressed very nicely. And in this town, what helped to cause them to become so prosperous was for a good long while, this area was famous, like I said before, for this black wool. And they had black wool that was cultivated here from the sheep. And as a result, it was spun into this fine clothing, specifically you know, outer garments like coats. And so people from all over the region, perhaps from all over the nation, they would have purchased their coats from here in Laodicea. This is like getting your 
your designer label. This is like your Under Armour. This is like your L.L. Bean. This is like your Gore-Tex. Whatever your brand it is, it's the one that you wish you could afford. This is where it was created. And so this was a fashion center. This was a clothing and textile center. This is like the Milan, Italy of the ancient world. And Jesus says, though you are physically clothed, I see you as spiritually naked. You're wearing black wool, but what you need is my righteousness. You need white clothes, and you need the salve of the Holy Spirit so that you can see. And it just goes to show that just like Jesus says elsewhere, that a man looks on the outward, God looks at the heart. That you can look rich, you can look powerful, you can look successful, you can look educated, you can look affluent and be spiritually impoverished and blind and naked and poor and not growing and not loving God and lukewarm toward the things of God. They lost their passion, they lost their values, they lost their sight, and they lost their clothes. Now, I want to ask you a few questions so we just don't hear about the Laodiceans and then arrogantly stand back and judge them, but instead we humbly learn from them, knowing that in many ways, many ways, we are prone to be just like them. And if we don't do that, we end up just reading the Bible like, quote, religious people who judge others rather than worshipers who allow the scriptures to judge ourselves. How are we prone to be just like the Laodiceans? Question number one, would you say your relationship with Jesus is, is cold, like, you know, you really don't care? Is it lukewarm, like you don't care very much? Or is it hot? You really do love Jesus, you really are motivated to get to know him better, you really do want to walk with him and by grace become more like him, would you say that you were lukewarm or, or you're hot? And sadly, what sometimes happens in Christianity is this. Lukewarmness is kind of accommodated. And we just compare ourselves to those other people who are like icy cold. And we think, well, I'm not as bad as they are, you know. But we're not where we should be. Question number two, would you say that Calvary Church is cold or lukewarm or hot? Sadly, I think that Jesus' word to the Laodiceans could be a word that's appropriate for many churches. Just lukewarm, not a real passion, not a real zeal. You know, people aren't giving. They're not serving. They're not caring. They're not trying. They're not risking. They're not innovating. It doesn't bother them that people aren't becoming Christians. It doesn't bother them that their lives are not being transformed. It doesn't bother them that everything is sort of just settled into this comfortable routine. And you can kind of imagine it here. Very affluent people going to church and then going out to lunch and then going on with their lives and not applying anything that the scriptures had really commanded them to believe or ways to behave. Question number three, what things keep you passionate and hot for God, to use the language here in Revelation? I mean, do you carve out that time? Do you safeguard that time? Some of you might say, well, it's, it's reading the Bible, or it's time in prayer, or it's time in fellowship with God's people. 
or it's sitting under the preaching of God's word, or some of you would say, you know, it's silence, it's solitude, it's just hiking out uh, in nature. Mary and I just spent a couple days up at the cabin closing it up. Wow, we come back refreshed. You know, just to get away and clear your thoughts and talk to the Lord. Some of you would say, maybe it's journaling or prayerfully considering, you know, with your pen in hand or with the laptop in front of you, you know, where I'm at and what God is teaching me, what I'm struggling with. And I would say that each of us probably has different ways by which our relationship with Jesus is cultivated and it stays hot. And whatever that is for you, how's it going? Are you safeguarding that? Are you protecting that? Or are you allowing yourself to become lukewarm? And number four, question number four, what parts of your life lack any sense of urgency? And that was really, I think, what Jesus is kind of getting at here. You know, he's saying there's just no sense of urgency, and that's how you become lukewarm. The lukewarmness often comes when there's no sense of urgency for repentance or for life or for faith or for growth or for others to meet Jesus or for the forward progress of the church. And by the way, Calvary does have a way forward. Look at verse 19. It says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Jesus' challenge to the church at Laodicea is be earnest, be zealous, and repent. But first, he says in verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So listen, you know, if you're lukewarm, he loves you. He loves the lukewarm. He disciplines those whom he loves. When Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, which was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, the opening line was basically this, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. If you stop repenting, I think you'll start growing lukewarm. And that's the big idea here. If you're always right, you know, always defending yourself and always blaming others, always judging others without judging yourself, always excusing yourself, always overlooking errors and follies and faults and flaws and foibles in your life, that's how you become lukewarm. And the way we stay hot is repentance. And that's where we turn from sin. We come back to Jesus. Be zealous and repent. He loves us. He loves us. And he goes on to say as well that he wants to, he wants to be in the church. Isn't that something? Jesus wants to be in the church. How many of you have heard verse 20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Have you heard that verse before? You know, we've seen the picture of Jesus standing at the door and knock. I've got two or three different versions of that picture. I love that picture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you. And usually that verse, that's the great evangelism verse. You know, hey, Jesus is here today, and he's knocking on the door of your heart. And I think it's okay to use this verse that way. I know I have. But the truth is, Jesus is not standing outside the door of your heart But here, in this passage, Jesus is standing outside the door of the church, of the Laodicean church. Go figure. The truth is, the church had a door, and they locked Jesus out. Jesus couldn't go to their church. He was too, perhaps, controversial. 
He was too opinionated. He was too strong-willed. He was too divisive. And so the church decided, well, we'll get together. We just don't want Jesus to come. And Jesus says, when you guys get together for church, I see you in your building, and you all walk in in your really nice clothes, and you show up, and you guys shut the door. When I show up, you lock me out. And so the image here is of the Lord Jesus standing outside, banging on the door of the church that has the name Christian on the placard, right? And they open to people, who is it? It's me. And they're like, no, we don't take your kind. You're going to tell us to repent. You're going to tell us we're wrong. You're going to tell us to give money and time and effort. And we have a very nice social club here. We do nice social things. And there are some very important people here, by the way. And these guys have degrees, and these guys have fancy chariots, and these guys have seven wives. And none of them really like what you have to say. And so we're deadbolting the door. And there are churches like that. And there are denominations like that too. And I think it's tragic. I mean, one guy asked me one time, why do you have to say the name Jesus all the time? I said, why do you ask? Well, you know people, God they're okay with, but... Jesus gets a little divisive. We start talking about Jesus, some people are going to get offended. And not everyone here is a Christian. Some people have other religions. About 12 years ago, I remember somebody invited me to their their service club and asked me to pray. And I'm a Christian, so I prayed. And I prayed in the name of Jesus. And some guy at the end got all bent out of shape. I mean, made a public display. Like, why are you praying in the name of Jesus here? You shouldn't pray in the name of Jesus. I haven't been invited back, by the way. But hey, I'm a Christian, and I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen? Yeah. I pray in the name of Jesus. Listen, this is, this gospel, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus. The hope for people is Jesus. The help for people is Jesus. The healing for people is Jesus. Christianity for us is not just a lifestyle. Come on. It's not just a social club or a way of living that's like moral and upright and it's good for the whole family. It really is meeting Jesus and having, our, having him take our sin. And give us his righteousness, those white clothes. And fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we're hot for God. And by the grace of God, we grow to increasingly be like Jesus. That's sanctification. And that changes our life and our family's life. And our community's life. And by the grace of God, our church's life. But it all begins and ends with Jesus. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. Jesus. And my question to you is this. Is Jesus really welcome in your life? Is Jesus really welcome in your home? Is Jesus really welcome here in our church? And is he welcome when he tells you to do something that you don't want to hear 
or when he tells you something that you don't want to hear. Some of you say, well, he's welcome as long as he says things like, I love you. You're like, I'm okay with that. But he says, I rebuke you. Well, I'm not okay with that one. It's it's an issue of lordship. It's an issue of sovereignty. It's an issue of submission. Who is in ultimate authority in your life, in this church, in your family? And so then he says, like he says to all the churches in verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He tells us to listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always talking, really, to God's people. I think primarily through the word of God, primarily through the scriptures, which he inspired to be written through human servants and human authors. And he also speaks through circumstances. He also speaks through events and through other believers and dreams and visions and that still small voice inside. And if we believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, and he always is, we need to check it out, right, by the word of God. God, and we need to check it out by the people of God and the leaders that God has placed over us, kind of like 1 John says. You know, don't believe every spirit, but test those spirits to see if they're from God. And we check everything, everything against the Word of God, against the straight edge of Scripture. But the question is always, God, what are you trying to say to me? And he says, if you listen to me, two things are going to happen. You're going to eat with me, and you're going to sit on a throne with me. Now in that day, the greatest honor was to eat with a king. Because you didn't get to eat with a king. And Jesus says, I'm the king of kings, not Domitian. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. And I'm going to let you sit down and eat with me. And not only that, but I'm going to let you sit on a throne with me. And so when we invite Jesus in, The supper room, listen to this, becomes the throne room. And it's through communion with Jesus Christ that we really find victory and become overcomers. You know, to to him who overcomes, it says in verse 21, right? I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne throne. And Jesus, you see, you have a picture of him. He is high and exalted and seated on a throne. And and this is the conclusion. This is it, the conclusion of the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. And the big idea from this point forward is this throne. It appears 45 times in the book of Revelation. It appears 14 in 14 of the 22 chapters of Revelation. And Jesus, he's the one that's seated on the throne. This goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah says six or, six or 700 years before Jesus was even born on this earth, he says, I saw heaven open, and I saw one seated on a throne. He was high and exalted. The angels worshiped him, and they cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. The question is, who is that king? Who is that king seated on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6? Well, John 12 40 to 41 says, Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke of his glory. So from this point forward, Revelation, the end of Revelation 3 forward, you know, in the book of Revelation, it picks up this theme, this picture, this imagery, this typology of a throne on which a king sits. 
And he's the one who rules, and we belong to him. If we submit to him, if we follow him, if we repent of sin to him, if we trust in him, this is the king who gave us his life. This is a king who died for us. This is the king who creates this kingdom in which we can have our sins forgiven and we can have our eternity changed and altered. And we can feast with him. And we can sit upon a throne with him, which means that Jesus is promising them even a more generous and lavish life than the one that they were enjoying in Laodicea. So, this is the image of Jesus. He agrees with the Father in all things. If you go back to verse 14, at the beginning of this uh, letter to the church at Laodicea, it says this. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. You know, Amen, it means that I agree. So he agrees with the Father in all things. Amen means I agree. And it says that he is faithful, that he is truthful, that he was there at the beginning, and he's our creator God, and he's our king. And so the word to Laodicea was simply this. This is who Jesus is. And the church did continue here for many years. And even around A.D. 363, there was a Christian council that met here in Laodicea. Eventually, this area was completely abandoned, and there is not a church there today. At least, we didn't see one. Sadly, basically, the whole region has grown lukewarm toward Jesus as God and Savior and King and Christ. There are a handful of believers uh, in the general area, but it's not a place that's well known for Christianity. So the seven, the letters of the seven churches, listen to this, are God's x-rays given to us so that we might examine our lives and our ministries. So let's examine our own hearts here and ask, how are we doing in our walk with Jesus? Individually, as a family, and corporately as a church, are we lukewarm? Are we indifferent? Is the light of the gospel starting to dim? Or is it growing brighter and brighter and brighter as we repent of sin and come to Jesus and see him as the exalted king seated on a throne who's generous and benevolent and gracious and good and the one in whom we trust. May the Lord help us. You know, I'm praying. May the Lord help us as individuals and as collectively as a church to hear what the Spirit is saying today to the church, to Calvary Church, and to individuals like you and me. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your word that never grows old, that you uh, speak to us. It is written. It still stands written, God. I thank you that your word is flawless. I thank you, Lord, that uh, it's a light uh, to our path. It's a lamp to our feet. God, I thank you that you guide us and direct us, and you love us enough to rebuke us at times. Lord, help us to put ourselves underneath your sovereignty and your lordship and be dependent upon you. Lord, we don't want to be lukewarm. We don't want you to spit us out of your mouth, God. We want to be on fire for you. So, Lord, I pray that you'd show us, Lord, how to see spiritually and how to be clothed with your righteousness and not our own and how to be passionate for you. So we just ask that the Holy Spirit would descend upon us even as we receive this offering. God, that you would 
be glorified, that you would be blessed as we worship you in giving. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, uh, we thank you for the fire of your love. Lord, kindle in us the fire of your love. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.